Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the AMR Studios. Slightly delayed. Maybe you can hear that I still can't really talk right, but we had to delay a week because I lost my voice. Apologies for that. But we do have a really great interview for you this month that Ava did with Dr. Celia Souk on the 25th of February, and I'll let you jump right into it. Hi, everyone. I'm really, really stoked and happy to have with us here today Celia Souk, that is right now working in the U.S., but she has also been working for a while in the U.K., although I believe you come from France, right, Celia? Yeah, exactly. And I'm really looking forward to hear about your work and your uh, work on outreach because you have a very exciting project to bring to us today. Celia, could you please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about your background and where you are now? Yes, uh, hi everyone. So my name is uh, Celia Souk. So I am currently talking to you from snowy Boston, where I am currently doing my postdoctoral research in the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. But uh, just before that, I did my PhD and a short postdoc at the University of Oxford in the Department of Zoology, where I was working on the impact of uh, mobile genetic elements on the evolution of antibiotic resistance, but where I also did quite a lot of outreach using my favorite media, board games. (laughs) That's very exciting. I went through your work of your thesis a little bit, so maybe we can start there just to give a, a timeline. You work on the impact of integrons in particular on AMR. Can you tell us what integrons are and how do they relate to AMR? I really love integrons. They're really like so interesting. So you really can think of them as this like genetic platform that really allows bacteria to acquire resistant genes like really, really easily. And they're really everywhere. Like if you go to a hospital and look at clinical samples and especially this type of bacteria called gram negative, you will really find integrons. So how do they work? So as I said, they're kind of like a genetic platform. So they consist of this enzyme that's called um, an integrase that's able to recognize sites that are found at the end of some resistant genes that are called like cassettes. And this integrase is able to recognize those sites and integrate those resistant genes into what we call an array. So you're really going to end up with resistant genes one after the other. One is going to give you resistance to aminoglycoside, one is going to give you resistance to beta-lactam. And what's nice, so these mechanisms allows the bacteria to acquire genes, but also to excise them. So like to really remove the gene from the genome. But on top of that, what's really interesting, so uh, on top of this like acquisition, deletion of genes, Uh, Where the genes are in the array uh, really matter. So, for example, genes that are in first positions are going to be actually like much more expressed as the genes that are in like towards the end of the array. So it's really like where the genes are really is really important. And that can be quite useful for the bacteria because obviously, like it can be useful to be really resistant to one antibiotic, but... um, can also be quite useful to have a gene at the end of the array because so some things that happen with resistant genes is that they carry a cost for the bacteria so that what we call like fitness is this idea that like being resistant uh, expressing like a lot of those enzymes that are going to degrade the antibiotic that it's it's a lot of work for the bacteria and so it can mean that they, they may end up growing like slower than their competitor and that's really problematic because bacteria are really always fighting for nutrients for example against other bacteria 
So having a resistant genes when it's not useful because there is no antibiotic can be quite a bad idea, like because you're gonna really basically gonna lose the fight against other bacteria, you're gonna be less fit. So this idea of bacterial fitness. And so with the integron, you're supposed to have these mechanisms that allow bacteria to really like balance these things that you want to be resistant when it's needed, but also you don't want to have the cost that's linked where with resistance when there is no antibiotics around. So so the integron is a super tool that can uh, allow them to do this. Uh, or at least that's what we knew when I started my PhD. We knew we had like, yeah, this cool mechanism. We knew all about the, how the, uh, the enzyme worked, how the recombination happened, but no one had really tried and tested to see, okay, what is the impact of the integron on bacterial evolution? Like, does this really help the bacteria evolve resistance to, to antibiotic? So, so to answer this question, uh, I use my my favorite tool that's called uh, experimental evolution, where you really take the bacteria in the lab and we, and we make them evolve, and then we see what happens. So, so to do that, for example, here I took, so I had bacteria that had a functioning integral that were able to like take the genes and like reshuffle them. And then uh, I made a, another type of bacteria, mutants that were, they were similar in all of the way. They had the same resistance level, Except in that mutant, I had basically deleted the genes that encode for this enzyme that allows the shuffling. So I had a bacteria that could shuffle mm-hmm. and I had bacteria that I couldn't. And then I took those two bacteria and I evolved them to try and see like what happened. Yeah, so I wanted to make them more resistant. So I started at first, so I would pass, uh, go in the lab every day and like transfer them in new media. But also like each day I would increase the concentration of antibiotic. So at first I would be close to no antibiotic, then at some point I would reach what's called the minimum inhibitory concentration, so really the concentration of antibiotic uh, that would normally kill the bacteria. And then some of them survived, so I continued mm-hmm. two times this concentration, four times, up to a thousand times the initial concentration of antibiotic. And so then what I did is, so I looked at, so I had a lot of population of both of those type of bacteria, and I looked at how many populations survived and how many died. And that gave me an idea like how good they were at evolving resistance. And I saw that effectively, the population with the functional integrons that were able to do all of this shuffling were effectively able to survive better than the one who didn't have the integrase. And then on top of that, you can use like technique, like uh, whole genome sequencing, for example, to look at once you have evolved those population in the lab, you can go and look at the genome and really see what happened. And here effectively in the one with a functioning integrase, we saw that it was all of this like catch shuff- like gene shuffling and like gene duplications, and which, which was really why those bacteria became so resistant. Mm-hmm. So integrons, as I understand, there's something that has been in the bacterial populations way before we started using antibiotics, you know, as treatment in, in the general public, so to speak. So the original reason for integrons to exist, it wasn't really to shuffle antibiotic resistant genes in particular. It might have been other reasons. But then I kind of understand that it's a tool or a or a characteristic of the bacteria, and then antibiotic-resistant genes kind of use it to populate the different bacteria, right? Is that how it works? Yeah, no, exactly. So integrons are a really good example. And how, so it's, integrons are really old. Like they, they evolved like the first time, like millions of years ago. Like, for example, in some bacteria, like uh, Vibrio cholerae, so the bacteria that cause uh, like cholerae. cholerae. <laughs> so they have this gigantic integron in their chromosome that's not linked with antibiotic resistance. It's really more about like, like really like as yeah, a fundamental process of the bacteria, like its physiology, like that's, um, that's just part of how they function. But at some point, like in the recent year, and I think we think it's because of like, the, because humans starting to use so much antibiotic all the time, 
that this tool actually ended up being really, really useful for mm -hmm. bacteria to become so multi-drug resistance to have all of the gene put together. And so, so those integrons that were originally on the chromosome of the bacteria uh, ended up on plasmids, which mm -hmm. was also like little circular pieces of DNA that can jump from one bacteria to another. And they ended up creating what we now call so those mobile integrons because they, they are on those plasmids and they can really spread around. Mm -hmm. And it's really those integrons that are actually quite different from the initial integrons that were on the chromosome that ended up being so useful for bacteria when it's come to, to evolving resistance and ended up really spreading everywhere. And what's really interesting is you now some people are suggesting that we could use, because they are so linked with antibiotic resistance, that we could use those mobile integrons as a, like, a tracker to see how much antibiotic is being used. And, mm -hmm. uh, and just like, because it correlates so well with like the presence of resistance, instead of having to look for 10 different resistance genes, you can just look at how much integron is there in your populations and then it give you an idea of like how much resistance is there around basically because they correlate so well it's like a marker like yeah, yeah you don't need to look for all these different resistance uh, genes but just like these integrons and i assume there are not so so many different sequences for the integrons or at least they have some signatures that are very similar in all the integrons right yeah, no, exactly. Like the, the one that's the really like clinically relevant is called like class one integron. It's like it's a sequence of mm -hmm. this gene is really, is, they're all basically the, the same. Very interesting. And now you have moved from your PhD to work on a postdoc with uh, Michael Bame. What uh, yeah. are you working now on? So, so I'm, it's quite early days, so it's really interesting because I've got all of those projects and like, uh, like I'm yeah, trying to come up with a lot of ideas. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, we will see what ends up working. So yeah. <laughs> but uh, so right now what I'm, what I'm looking at, so I'm really interested at in everything that's linked with uh, horizontal gene transfer. So this ability that some bacteria have, uh, the fact that bacteria can uh, exchange genes with each other. So either to those plasmids that can like move from one bacteria to another. But uh, there is this other mechanism. So some bacteria can just also like just take up DNA from the environment. So that's a process that's called natural transformation. And some bacteria that are multi-drug resistant, like uh, acid into bacteria for example, which is quite a problematic one, are like are really good at doing this. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to investigate, okay, like what is this impact of this mechanism on the evolution of resistance, but also like, can we, can we stop it? <laughs> and, uh, and so the way I'm trying to see how we can stop it is that, so, so how does this natural transformation work? The bacteria is a big filament and go out of the bacteria to like take up DNA and bring it back inside the cell from the environment. So it's something that happened on the surface of the cell, which means because it's happened on the surface of the cell, it's a really good target for bacteria worst enemies, which are the bacteriophages, which are mm -hmm. those viruses that can infect bacteria. But what I'm trying to do is to find bacteriophages that would target this mechanism so that they could potentially stop the bacteria from acquiring genes from its, and therefore resistant genes from its environment and see if I can find a phase that we can use as a tool to stop this mechanism from happening. Really cool, because so far the most we have talked about using bacteriophages as active treatment, you're actually infecting the bacteria and killing it. But I think this is another aspect and turn into the use of phages, which would be actually to prevent a mechanism that is inherited to the bacterial cell to avoid taking up potentially resistant genes as well. That's really, really interesting, really cool. I, I know that is early on, but uh, I hope that uh, something catches on and there is something there to, to be found. It would be really cool. We move a little bit forward from your research. You said while you were doing your PhD, you were also very interested in doing outreach, which is something that I feel very close to as well, because that was also my, my path. Can you tell us a little bit what kind of outreach have you, have you done? What things of outreach did you start with? 
So yes, I was lucky to join a lab that really liked doing outreach. So at first we would like go to the Museum of the History of Science in Oxford and we would have like classes of students coming and we would have like posters and we would chat with them, uh, which was a lot of fun. But uh, I always wanted to do something a bit more like hands-on because it's one thing like to show them a video or a poster, but I was like, come on, we can do something a bit more like uh, hands-on. Interactive, right? Like you want to... In more interactive, to, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, so you, you actually are one of the key persons developing a pretty successful board game that teaches about antibiotics and bacteria and resistance called drugs versus bugs. And yeah. it's not only about bacterial per se, it's more about getting the concepts of treatment and resistance and you know AMR it doesn't only relate to bacteria and antibiotics. So I like that it has the name drugs versus bugs because it's very wide. Can you tell us a little bit how this project started? So that's actually the second board game that I created. So uh, so at first I started with a, with a mini board game that was a, a bit more linked with my research, where I wanted to explain, so this concept of like bacterial fitness, the fact that uh, antibiotic resistance has a cost. So I created a game where like, so the players are pl uh, all the bacteria basically, and they can get like mutations that make them resistant, but that will also make them grow slower. So they have to find this right balance between being resistant, but still being able to grow. And it was all about being like the bacteria that was the most successful. Mm -hmm. As I was doing this project, uh, uh, so it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I was also looking for an internship because as part of my PhD program, you had to do three months outside of the lab, outside of academia, get out of the lab, do something else. That's great, yeah. So I was like, well, our treat sounds pretty good. And I got to chat with um, a former PhD student who was back in Oxford for his graduation and was now doing a postdoc in Southeast Asia. I think he was in Laos and was like, you, you know, like I am in a unit that really cares about outreach. So you should contact my supervisor to ask and go there and do you try and do a board game outreach project. And so that's what ended up happening. Like, and so I ended up spending, uh, like going to, so to Bangkok in this Mahidol Oxford research unit, which is a joint unit between the Wellcome Trust and the University of Oxford and Mahidol University, like the main medical university in Bangkok, where I was basically doing for three months a board game creator in residence. I had one goal to create a board games, which like was absolutely amazing. <laughs> and so um, my first board game I did was more about like the mechanism of resistance. But here I wanted something where the main message was going to be um, more about public health message. What is antibiotic resistance? The fact that you shouldn't use antibiotics against viruses, but only against bacteria. Or the fact that the more we use antibiotics, the more resistance survives. And so really this precious resource that we should use really like parsimony and like really only when they're needed. And so Drugs versus Bugs is the game that creating all of this with the help of like other, other students that were here. And so, yeah. So how do you play Drugs versus Bugs? Yeah, yeah I was going to ask you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> so in Drugs versus Bugs, so like, so players are, are basically a team of doctors. Uh, they are going to get like patients infected with the bacteria or viruses. So with viruses, obviously you don't use antibiotics, <laughs> but with bacteria. So what happened is, so you have access to like, you have to cards that represent antibiotics. So to make it easy, so each, each antibody corresponds to a color. So you have the red antibiotic that we call redomycin. <laughs> you have the blue antibiotic that like blue streonam. So like yeah, we did a, a fun mismatch between colors and antibiotics. And, um, and so you, you decide the antibiotic you want to use. So you place it on the table. And then you have to see, will your treatment work? Because you don't know in advance. Mm -hmm. And so to see if it works, we have these bags that we call the resistant bags. And that's full of tokens. So the token can be white, or the token can be colorful. 
And if you draw a red token, it means that the bacteria is resistant to the red antibiotic. So, for example, if you use blue antibiotic, then you don't want to draw a blue token. Mm-hmm. So that's how you can check if your bacteria is resistant or not. So the tokens that you get out of the resistant bugs is by chance, right? You don't know what you're going to pick yeah. up. You just So that's basically also a bit like a resistant works because it's already pre-existent in the population and you don't really know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's happening is that, so as a start, the bag is full of white tokens, which means your treatment will more often really be successful, like you'll really be able to treat the, the bacterial infection really easily. But each time you or any player actually like use an antibiotic card, then you're going you have to put a token of that corresponding color into the bag, which means at the start, the bag is light and full of white tokens. But as the game goes along, the bag becomes like heavier and heavier, full of those colorful tokens that represent resistance, basically. Mm-hmm. So like, so patients become like harder and harder to treat. So yeah, but luckily, like you have other mechanisms that you can use to try and still be able to treat patients. So you have other cards that you can use. For example, you can try and help prevent patients from becoming infected. So you can like teach them to wash their hand properly, or you can try and like vaccinate them against bacteria to just stop them from being infected in the first place. Mm-hmm. So something I was really keen to do is that came actually more from like game mechanics that let me like, oh, actually this is really linked with something that happened in real life, which is the fact that in the game, you don't know in advance if your treatment is going to work or not. And that's something that's happened really in real life. When a patient comes to hospital, often the, the clinician have to start giving them antibiotics straight away before they get the results mm-hmm. and know like which antibiotics the bacteria is resistant against. Mm-hmm. And so that was really something I was keen to have as well because one of the cards that the players can use is a, like, a rapid diagnostic card where they can check and see in advance before they place the card what is the bacteria resistance against. And so that was something I was keen to put in because it's really, really represent like one of the big... It shows nicely what's the big need in antibiotic research, which is the fact that we need like new new development tool i mean i have not played it play it with people but i have looked through all the rules and how it works and i think it's really complete you know it has a lot of these concepts and and angles to the problem that you can teach it through using it or you can just disregard it and not really put attention to it if you are playing with people or with kids that are younger and they won't be able to grasp. So it has a lot of layers to it and a lot of levels of potentiality to explain and to learn different concepts, which is really cool. I was wondering, though, did you face any particular challenges when trying to develop this game? It was a lot of fun, but it was also like not easy at the start. Because when you want to create a board game, you have definitely, you have basically two ways to do it. So you can either take a game that already exists and then basically just like reflavor it. Like you change a bit the card or the theme or like just give it a different flavor. And so it's helped because then the core mechanics already exist. It's already balanced. But like often it can be a bit hard to like move away from the original game. Or you can start from scratch, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely the most challenging part, because then you have all of the mechanics you want to introduce. Uh, It was really rewarding, but then like getting the balance right, making sure that like, oh, you have all of the different strategies at work and like it's not too random. It's something that's definitely not easy. And I'm still trying to like tweak it before it gets to its final version. Mm-hmm. Uh, like because I really want to make a game like ideally where like people want to play it like again and again like well you like when you play it once you're like oh I think I get an idea you know what was strategy could have been used to win and we're like I want skills to really to be involved so that was one part of it in the development another part and I think that's I think resonate with a lot of people who do outreach is that it's one thing to play a game or like do an activity with a small group of people 
it's something else to go into a classroom and uh, have, a, have a 30 kids in front of you that and you have like an hour and a half for them to get the game, understand the rules of the game, manage to play it and get some time at the end to get to get feedback. So we did it fairly early in the process. And I think that was really, really necessary because for the, like for the first time, for example, like just getting to a point where like the rules are easy to understand, making sure I remove all of the the mechanics that are a bit funky or like hard to understand because I didn't want them to be stumped by the rules and then just not engaging with the with the rest of the material because if they're like, oh, I don't know what to do, what is this, this is so complicated, you're really like, you're really missing the mark. Mm -hmm. So we ended up actually like creating like two versions of the rule, like one that was much more simpler, but you can grab straight away. So like with just the core mechanism of the resistance and the bags and which is something that you can play like fairly quickly. And then having like the full version with all of the those complex mechanics and strategies that I really, really like. But yeah. <laughs> uh, like when it's come to being in a classroom with a limited amount of time and a lot of kids, like you, you do have to make some compromises. Yeah, definitely. I, I see how that actually one of the questions I had, it was like, why to have a simplified version? I mean, I understand it that, you know, it's not the same playing with a big group or trying to use it as an outreach tool for that particular activity rather than a board game where a group of friends can sit with it and be a whole evening trying to understand how does this work and it's, 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 it's the same thing, but it has like two different environments where it can work in different ways, right? So seeing that you actually brought it to the schools and I saw that you were in Thailand and you were working with kids, uh, some younger, some a bit older, kind of middle school to high school. Have you been able to evaluate the impact of the game in the knowledge acquisition and in the general knowledge in the population that you have worked with? Uh, yeah, so that's something that we did. So we made some like questionnaires. So like, yeah, I think I, I base it on like either the WHO or the Europe trying to judge like the the knowledge of the population on antibiotic resistance, mm -hmm. and had like a few points. I based like my questionnaire of that to see like, okay, could I see a difference between at the start and then at the end of the at the end of the session? And I definitely saw some impact. Mm -hmm. I think it was a bit depending as well on like the what they knew already from the start. But there were some fun. Kind of like fun result, for example, like some of the kids really knew that you couldn't use antibiotics to treat viruses. But then I had a question just after where I was asking them, do you use antibiotic to treat flu? And they were like, yes. So they were able to say like an uh, antibiotic against bacteria, yes, but not viruses. But then like knowing what's actually a viral infection was actually like trickier. And for them, like flu was not was not a virus so mm -hmm. it was interesting to see those di these differences one of the most other things I took up most was the, the fact that prevention and just like washing your hand getting vaccinated is actually something that you can do which I don't think that like they had realized mm -hmm. so I think yes that was one of the main things that the, the game was quite helpful for because to be fair I think it's a game like those prevention mechanics are maybe slightly overpowered but I was like eh. <laughs> it's I understand not it, a no. bad thing. And, it, and it's good I mean as you say doing these at the earlier stages of developing something is good because you can see what things work what things don't work how do you tweak yeah. it so you actually because you might get results that you really don't expect from the beginning especially coming from someone that is so into the topic already it's very difficult for us to put ourselves in the minds and the knowledge of someone that doesn't have the background we have. So this testing, run and testing and remaking and retesting is very important. Uh, what is the status of the game right now? Are you going to try to make it uh, potentially commercially available as a 
just as a fun game to play or being included in some curriculum or something like that? So I was really hoping, like once I finished my PhD and I stayed a bit in Oxford for the postdoc to like going to school and like really like do more like bigger scale, like see really what was the impact because like all of the testing I did was more during the development. So like mm -hmm. from one session to another, the game was actually different. But like during a pandemic, bringing kids together around a table to play board game is obviously not going to happen. Yeah. So now I'm really hoping that I can pick that up uh, here from, from Boston once I know a bit more like the, the lay of the land. So there is definitely like yeah, doing evaluating a bit more in school. Mm -hmm. But also, I really hope that I can get to like maybe do a kick, I think Kickstarter or usually some things that happen a lot with board games. So I still want to like yeah, tw tweak the rules a bit just to make sure I get the balance quest and do a bit more playtesting. So now that the pandemic is receding a bit, mm -hmm. hopefully getting people together to play board games is is a bit more doable. But uh, yeah, that's that's I really hope that some people that I managed to, uh, I, I get to achieve like uh, at some at some point. Soon. Yeah, obviously. I mean, uh, I'm very happy that we got to talk to you now in this stage because the people listen into this podcast you know if you are interested we leave the link to the website in the show notes and there you can actually explore the game you can even download it and print it and play it and you have also some links for some feedback if people are using it which would be really useful so i really encourage you if you are teaching if you have a possibility to use this game in some outreach activities go out there it's fun it's super colorful and very very pretty to look at as well so i i'm a really big fan it's really cool uh it was great to get to know about this game but i'm also wondering now that we are into the interview quite a lot you've been working with evolutionary questions which sometimes is difficult per se to understand you know it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult concept to grasp because it's not something that we can see it's not something that is readily able to see the impact of and you have also worked with outreach which means that you have talked to a lot of people out there people with different backgrounds different levels of knowledge about topics is there something in particular that you have a hard time communicating or getting people to understand so that's one of the things with evolution that I think even myself as a start, like I got to like struggle with, with all of, like, or it's easy to like make a mistake when you talk about this. And it's the fact that evolution and like as no agency, for example, so when bacteria evolve, they're not like trying to become resistance. Like it's not something that's happening. What's happening is more like when bacteria multiply, like they will diversity will be created in the population. Like some bacteria will become, will have mutations, which will make them more resistant. Uh, some of them will like, will have like bad mutations that will like uh, make them like uh, grow slower. Or you have the integrants that create like diversity in the bacteria because they can like acquire or lose genes. And then on top of that, then you had what's called natural selection. The fact that the bacteria that are well adapted to this particular environment at this point in time will grow faster than the bacteria that are less adapted, which will then will die. And then you start repeating the process. So it's, it's, it's something that can be, and it can be a bit tricky, especially when you just talk about bacteria. You want to say, oh, yes, the bacteria then can do this and do that. And like, we'll like, but it's, it's not directed. The bacteria is not trying to become resistant. It's more like, it's really like a much more of a random process than it's then selection can act upon. And that's was actually something when it came to like designing this first board game where like at first I wanted to make it like really really similar to like what's happening in real life with evolution but I was like is this going to be the most boring game ever because like when you design a board game you want to give your player agency you want them to make choices and then see the consequences of the action mm -hmm. while like an actual like evolutionary 
game would just be you like rolling a lot of dices or like drawing a lot of cards and then <laughs> yeah. something happened and you lose or you win, but like you didn't do anything basically <laughs> apart from that. That's very true. It's very a very good point. And I think sometimes when communicating, we do have to like, especially like making a game, that's what I mean, that we have to take uh, some shortcuts in order to make it more engaging and in a way that it can, people can relate to it. And, you know, anthropomorphizing bacteria is something that we have done in and out when communicating so people can feel closer to it. But we have to still understand that there is a fundamental difference in the way that evolution works and resists and it gets selected. It's not something that they just want to do it. They are so smart that they become resistant, right? Like, no, they are very resourceful, that's for sure. But then everything else happens kind of by chance. <laughs> Great. Unfortunately, we are going to have to start wrapping up soon. But I wanted before we sign off to ask you if there is anything in particular that you would like to see more of in your area or something that you are hoping that we will see more of in the future yeah i just really really hope that uh, like as an evolutionary biologist like i really see antibiotic resistance as an evolution problem it's really this race between like uh, us uh, and the bacteria oh like oh, the evolution of resistance in bacteria and so to win a race like you can either like run faster and for us that would be like developing new antibiotics for example but uh, you can also try and make sure that your opponent like goes slower and that would be for example like making being able to slow down the evolution of resistance and so I really hope that we'll like be able to develop uh, and really bring to like the clinic like interventions or like drugs that would be able to stop or slow down the evolution of resistance. I just hope that like evolutionary biologists and clinicians, for example, would be able to talk to each other a bit more. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's something that's often a bit a bit missing. Like we go to our own evolution conference and then the clinician go to their own clinical conference. And I feel like the the overlap between the those those two group of people who all work on antibiotic resistance, I think there could be like more communications. Mm -hmm. So now that I'm based in a in a medical school, I hope at least at my level I will be able to to chat to a bit more clinicians. Definitely. I mean this podcast is also an opportunity for that, right? I know that a lot of people working in the clinics, nurses, doctors, people working with the patients listen to it. So I hope that they take the chance to think, you know, that the work that people like you are doing is also extremely relevant for the work that they are doing. And it would be really cool to see coming up something that can slow down evolution. I wouldn't say as much as stop it, because I think evolution is the one, the one force in nature that I don't think it can really be stopped, right? Like, that's also why I love it so much. But something that it has the angle of taking this into account you know it i agree with you it would be really good with this Celia, i would like to ask you if you have anything else that you would like to tell our audience before i have to sadly say bye to you yeah i think just yeah try the board game if you can and give me all of this feedback and then just also if you can do a switch just go and do it like because it's it's useful for the field but i think like as a researcher i've just really really enjoyed it and there is like nothing better than once you're a bit fed up with your experiments in the lab because nothing worked to go and talk to people and get them excited about your research and that really makes you excited back and then you're ready to get going again. Well, I totally agree with you. It was it was so great to get to know you, Celian, to get to know your work professionally. Personally, I feel like you are very close to it as well and you really live for it which is a great inspiring feeling to have so I hope a lot of people take on that as well and take it with them home thank you so much for being with us and hope to keep in touch and see how, how things develop thank you bye 
Welcome back from a great interview. Jenny, what uh, did you think about our friend Celia and what did she's working with? It was a really fun interview to listen to, in part because I felt a lot in common with her. Obviously, she's done a lot of great things, and I'm not trying to say that, but like some of the work she did in her PhD is actually quite similar to the work that I'm doing from, from a different angle, but overlaps a little bit. So personally, that was really great to listen to and to think about it from the angle more of integrons, which I haven't really thought about that much, but also just listening to somebody that's worked in outreach and seems to enjoy it so much. It was it was a pleasure to hear her talk about it. Yeah, I thought when I was going through the interviews, like Jenny is going to also really enjoy and I, I kind of part of me wishes yeah. that you would have talked to her as well and maybe we could have done an interview together because the three of us, it feels like we will make a really kind of great team talking about evolution and there's a lot in common between all three of us <laughs> yeah my phd as i mentioned i don't know if i mentioned the interview was also very much based on the evolution of bacteria even though you two guys are looking into resistance in particular you know and then evolution of resistance for me was more like basic concepts on the evolution of bacteria but that's what's kind of great like the resistance part is more similar to mine but the like rearrangement of genetic elements is more yours so it was kind of like overlapping both our projects and I thought that was really fun it's great when we were talking about you know that evolution it's so beautiful because it shows us that a tool can be actually be used for different things right that's what we were talking on the interview that is not all these things that have to do with resistance. Sometimes they are directly related to resistance, you know, like when a mm-hmm. resistant gene is present in bacterial populations for many millions of years because of the bacterial ecology and how they use these resources. But there are also their characteristics of the bacterial chromosome of the genome that can be used, can somehow piggybacking for resistance-related yeah. things. And it's just great to see that... You know, it's not an intent to, you know, Mm -hmm. be used for resistance. It's just something that is there and then it can be used in different ways. Yeah. And like you guys said so well, I mean, even working in this field, and I don't work that much with evolution, to be honest, but like it obviously overlaps with what I do. You have to remind yourself constantly that the bacteria don't have the goal of becoming resistant or anything like that. There's no end goal for the bacteria. It's a thing that happens spontaneously and then there's selection on it. I thought you guys explained that really well. And even being in the field, you kind of constantly have to remind yourself this because the phrasing we use every day tends to be more like, oh, and then the bacteria became resistant. And like, it just doesn't really overlap with what's actually going on, you know? So I think it's a great reminder for me personally of like the basic concepts of evolution. And when she was mentioning that this is one of perhaps the hardest things to talk to to everybody, even people that are not working on evolution, right? That, you yeah. know, it just it's a random thing. And it's a random thing. It's very difficult for us to relate to random things since mm-hmm. we have a lot of intent in our lives around and in the way that we also behave and we, we do something because of a reason. Yeah. And I think humans also tend to try to find patterns of intent mm-hmm. or like just generally find patterns. Well, it's it's hard to see something so complex and ending in such, I mean, if you just look at the complexity of like living organisms, it's almost impossible to imagine that it's not without intent or yeah. that it's without intent. It just feels weird. You know, it doesn't feel normal. Like it makes sense that people think that's not true in a way, but you kind of have to bring yourself back to like all of this it's just random and then selected for. But yeah, I thought it was really, really fun to hear about Celia's work previously. But also something that she mentioned kind of quickly, but how she got into working with the game. 
this setup in her PhD program where they do an internship for, I think she said three months and they're, they're, that they're kind of pushed to get out of the lab. Like, I think that sounds amazing. It would be great to do that. I think it'd be great for a lot of people to kind of just get out and do something else and get back to what they do, you know, but yeah, there are challenges to that as well. And I know when we were talking about this before, Eva, you mentioned that PhDs in many countries, Sweden is actually relatively lenient with how long a PhD is. And since that we usually have four years, um, a lot of countries have three years and three months of a three-year period is a massive chunk of time. I still think it's really nice to have that motivation to leave, to do something else. I know some programs maybe not ask people to do totally different things, but they require that their students travel to a different lab for a while, maybe work on a part of their project that hasn't been working well in a different setting. And I really think that kind of thing probably benefits most PhD students, both in learning flexibility, but also in just change of environment, resetting your mind a little bit and mm -hmm. getting out of the rut. I completely agree with you. I think it's a very nice setup. And I, I think there are drawbacks to it, as you were saying, you know, you are constrained in time. But I think if you have the idea that this is going to happen from the beginning, when you start your PhD, when you are designing a research plan and a study plan with your supervisor, you know, this is something that you have to do. If you have it in the back of your head from the very beginning, you might start thinking of possibilities of what you would like to do as you are going along. And also you are able to kind of compensate for that time that you won't be maybe doing the experiments on the lab or following up with that particular research project while you're doing this other thing around. So I think even though there are drawbacks, you know, and you might be a little bit stressed out in how to put all this together, I think if you have it as a natural part of your training and your PhD, you will be able to kind of manage with it. And I think, as you say, the contributions to, to the learning process and to your mental sanity, if you are able to move away and do something different. It could be really, really beneficial. Yeah. And I think PhDs are like a lot of things. You fill the time you have. Like making it longer won't necessarily make it less stressful. You just, you fill the time you have and you cram as much as you can in there. Mm -hmm. But coming into the actual game that Celia designed, and Ava, you and I have some experience here. We've worked on trying to design a game and for outreach settings and stuff like that. So I heard in your interview, too, some of the topics that you talked about are things that we've struggled with or thought about with our, our project. But I really like that she set up the game kind of from the beginning with two settings. It's a great goal to have a game that can be played for fun. Yes. <laughs> like that. It, it sounds stupid, but like to make a board game really successful, of course, it's got to be a board game. But I really enjoy that she kind of did a reset setting for in educational settings where you have a limited amount of time, can't get into all the fun nitty gritty, you kind of have to just simplify the rules and go for it and get some learning tools out of it instead. Mm -hmm. And I think that sounds really smart. I haven't personally seen the game myself and I'd love to look at it. I hope I get a chance to soon. Just that idea of two different settings, I think that's a great concept. Yeah, I think it, it kind of builds on each other because the beautiful thing about a game that is played for fun is that kind of the learning part comes as a secondary thing. So the first thing Absolutely. is that you play it because it's fun and it's entertaining and it's beautiful to look at. But then you have the downstream effect that you are learning about concept while you're playing, right? And for that, having an unlimited amount of time and having a, a game that can be explored and that you can just get into it, it's, it's beautiful and it's great. But when you are working in an education setting and you have a limited time, your primary goal is that certain things are learned from 
going through this experience. So you yeah. have to rearrange a little bit how you do things and how complex it gets and how difficult the rules might be to get into it. Because what you want is that while playing quickly, you get to that outcome of learning. She was mentioning, you know, a game based solely on evolution has no agency. And it resonated so much <laughs> with me because we, you know, you and I, we have had this yeah. conversation that our game is is great. It kind of dwells on the concepts we want people or the students or the kids to, to kind of focus on. And we put emphasis on that. But I think the player is just a vessel for what's yeah. happening in the game rather than them having an agency and taking decisions. Which is why it doesn't work as like a, a fun board game. It's an educational tool. Which is has a level of fun to it, but it's not, you know, I would never break that game out for game night at home, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like, you know, two different, I kind of see a bit like with our game, we are a little bit gamifying education and knowledge acquisition. And then when you create a full on board game that is fun to explore, it's like you are education uh game experience you know like yeah, you're making a, a game into an educational tool rather yeah. than making an educational tool into a game right that, that's yeah. what i meant that's what i wa wanted to say absolutely so, but uh, i mean I, I really love that this game exists and i really hope that uh, you guys here listening to us can head on uh, to the show notes and click and then explore a little bit the game and maybe even use it in your own setting absolutely but yeah it was an incredibly enjoyable interview and i Look forward to seeing what she does in the future, both in outreach and her um, lab research. Sounds really applicable to me in both settings. So all in all, very enjoyable. But with that, we're going to move on to our news. Yes, let's move to the news of this month. So as usual, we have two articles this news segment. The first one, we're talking about a kind of dreaded antibiotic. Uh, Ava, do you want to talk about this paper for us? Sure. Yeah, we are going to talk about colistin and we are going to talk about an article published in the PNAS journal back in the 9th of March with the title Recent Citation of MCR Carrying Multidrug Resistant Bacteria to Colistin by Silver. It really caught my eye, this title, when I was, you know, going on the rounds to see what was published this past month, because there is a lot of talk about silver as well when it comes to antimicrobial treatment. So just because of that, I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. What do they mean by silver resensitizing MCR carrying resistant? Um, and also, of course, colistin, as we were mentioning. Colistin is a drug that has been available for a really long time, so it's nothing new. But it's a somewhat toxic drug. It works well. It can kill bacteria, but it can also give a lot of other side effects when it's using humans. But lately, as of the problem of getting up with more and more pathogens that are multidrug resistant or extensively drug resistant, we have some situations where we have to resort to using colistin for patients that are very sick with very bad pathogens, right? So because the more and more use of colistin, and also not only in humans, but in the farm sector, it has happened that resistance to colistin has arisen. When these resistant genes are in plasmid, in these mobile elements, now we have a problem because we have a gene that can give resistance to colistin and that is easily transferred between different bacteria. And we have talked here before that the problem with resistance is really when this resistance jumps into a pathogen, right? And having these genes in mobile elements, this is what happens. in then pathogens that can make people sick. 
So the genes that we are talking about are known as the MCR family of genes, which calls for mobile cholestin-resistant genes. And what they were looking in this paper is basically at the possibility that maybe some metals and some components are able to make bacteria that carry these resistant genes to be sensitive again to cholestin. That means that even though they carry the resistant genes, by using cholestin together with something else, we can then treat with cholestin. So cholestin is usable, it's working, it's killing the bacteria. In this paper, what they found is that silver, both as silver nitrate, but also as silver nanoparticles, is able to do this. It's able to make the bacteria carrying these resistant genes to be sensitive to cholestin again. The reason why silver is being talked about as a potential antimicrobial per se, just like silver being able to kill bacteria, is because metals are potentially good at actually killing in general and killing not only bacteria but killing cells. The reason why metals are good at doing this is because there's a lot of metals that are needed for normal living functions to work. You know, we have some proteins that are doing things in the cell. They are not just building blocks. They are actually performing activities. And to perform these activities, most of the time they need some metals to work. This is what we call cofactors, right? So if we are using other metals, we might be able to replace those important metals in these working proteins, and then the protein doesn't work anymore. So silver and other metals can be potentially used as antimicrobial or antibacterial agents because of this. But that comes with a downside, and is that if they are so good at also stopping these proteins for doing their activities, they might also be good at stopping our own proteins for doing their activities. And that's what we call toxicity, right? You are using something that does not only target the bacteria, but it can also have the side effect of producing toxicity in our own cells. That's why even though silver potentially can be used to disinfect surfaces and all those kind of things, you know, we can also use bleach, but we will never drink bleach because bleach yeah. will also be very bad for our own bodies. Then using silver at high concentrations is toxic to the body. The thing is that here they have seen that in order for silver to work this way and be able to make the cell sensitive again to cholestin, they don't need to use that much, which is kind of a positive side, right? You don't have to use the silver at concentrations that might give you these kind of side effects that we're, we're talking about. They go on the paper in a lot of detail to try to figure out why is this actually happening, no? It's not just about finding that it does happen. It's like, why does it happen? And they do a lot of biophysical studies. They do crystallography, which is looking at the structures of these things together. What they are able to see is that silver has the capability to replace the metal that is normally working as a cofactor in the MCR protein. So normally there is a zinc there in the middle, and then that zinc gets replaced by silver in an irreplaceable manner. That means that it's a very strong replacement of the zinc by the silver. And when this silver is there, it also makes the binding of the MCR protein to its target not possible. So because of this change of the zinc to the silver, then that MCR protein no longer works as it should. And then there is availability of the cholestin to do the job as it should and therefore kill the bacteria. So, of course, they did this in vitro, 
obviously. And then the next question is, will this actually work in a human? And even though they have not done, you know, as far as clinical studies or going into the human setting, what they were able to at least do in the scope of this project is to see that the same effects also happen when you use cholestine together with low concentration of silver in both systemic mice infections and wound mice infections. So they're able to see that there is a translation of the in vitro data into in vivo mouse models. I have a personal vendetta against working with colistin. So this is an interesting paper for me to read. I've tried to work with colistin, looking at colistin resistance, and it is horrible to work with as a researcher. It's horrible to work with as a patient all around. So keeping that in mind, I thought this paper was really great because they tend to use a lot of controls within it and stuff like that. It's really cool that they found this. As a, it's really desensitizing. I mean, they compare it to strains that don't carry MCR and they don't see that the silver has like any effect. It's not changing anything, but it's only when the cells carry this MCR gene. So they got this nice, clear result from the beginning. Uh, this doesn't seem to be true for all types of MCR genes. There's a whole sleuth of types of MCR genes, but it was true for several of them. They also did a nice experiment where they looked at the development of resistance to colistin. So they basically grew the strains either with no MCR, with the MCR gene and with uh, silver and colistin present over time and kind of saw like, okay, are they developing resistance over time? And there wasn't as much resistance being developed when silver and colistin were both present. But I do think like there's a tiny increase there that I think they're down, they're downvaluing, but that's just me personally being critical. And I did think it was really great that they brought in the animal experiments in this research because it's so relevant that this is possible to do in any sort of living animal. I mean, I'm concerned that treating patients that are already being treated with colistin, which is, again, quite toxic and difficult to work with in that sense, with also silver, even if it's at a lower concentration, you might see increased toxicity that kind of negates the value. It's all, it's all a balance of how mm -hmm. much the patient can manage and how if you have any other options available. Mm -hmm. Especially when colistin, at least nowadays, you know, is being used in very sick patients. Yeah. I mean, these are patients that are usually very sick. Then you're giving them a medication that's making them sicker, maybe, to try to make them better. If you throw in something else that might be toxic in there, I'm concerned. Yeah. But I have no experience with that. I'm not a clinician. And obviously, we're reaching the point where there are cases that this might be the only situation and mm -hmm. it might not be bad. So I think doing more extensive work and looking at the toxicity of the combined colistin and silver would actually be really useful mm -hmm. and give us a lot more information about if this is a potentially feasible treatment. It's a really nice paper just because it has so many different parts to it. It's an open access article, so I highly recommend you look into it. We've glossed over a lot of detail here, and especially if you know a lot about the chemistry of it. I know less of that, can't say a lot about that, but it sounded very interesting and mm -hmm pretty unique in how it worked but I can't really say if that's true or not yeah and even if you are a little bit farther away from you know this topic in particular I have to say that I think the paper is beautifully written it goes to Absolutely. the point and it's very easy to understand what they are getting to obviously me or other people might lack the critical thinking of the particular methodology to be able to you know assess that I really enjoyed enjoy this read for this month for sure Moving on to our next article, we are bringing you um, an article that talks about something that we both, Jenny and I, think is very relevant to the topic and that we would personally really like to see more of. Right, Jenny? Yeah. 
Definitely. So this article, I'll just tell you the title because it gives a lot of the information away. It's called The Value, Challenges, and Practical Considerations of Conducting Qualitative Research on Antimicrobial Stewardship in Primary Care. And it was published in JAC, Antimicrobial Resistance, as a review article on the 16th of March of this year. And this is also an open access paper. The overall theme is kind of looking at, okay, qualitative research expanding into, for example, medical journals. So they're talking about how we can use qualitative research, how beneficial it could be to have qualitative research in AMR research, basically, but in this case, specifically looking at antimicrobial stewardship or AMS and often in primary care settings. I'm having a hard time thinking of how I want to frame this article because there's a lot of good in it, I think. I think this paper is a really good read for anybody like you and me, Ava, maybe who come from a background where we do a lot of quantitative research and maybe have a hard time understanding and really reading critically, but also reading and understanding qualitative research. So they introduce some of the differences between these kinds of research, including, you know, or quantitative research asks how much, how many, how often, that sort of questions. While qualitative research is more asking the why, the how, all of those sorts of things that are more, I'd say, complex and abstract and hard to define, but trying to bring them down. Uh, but there's been historically kind of a struggle between quantitative and qualitative research that some of the stringent quality checks we put on quantitative research don't really apply to qualitative research. But they're pushing here, and I agree that it still definitely has a value. There's definitely good things about it, and it cannot be ignored. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that came up that I thought was really useful as having read this the first time, they do a very generalized division between the qualitative approaches that can be used. It can be divided into experiential, so focused on understanding people's views and experiences, and discursive, so understanding how language can be used to construct a viewpoint and whatnot. I'd kind of thought about this, like now that I read that, I could understand it thinking about other qualitative research stuff I've read before, but I have had no background in qualitative research, so I didn't really know to divide them. And it that, that kind of thing kind of came through in several parts here. Yeah, as the authors are saying in the paper at the beginning, they really aim to give you a how-to kind of guideline to how to think about qualitative research. If you are working in multidisciplinary teams or you think that you are working on something that could benefit from having more data than just quantitative data, because I personally think bringing in together this quantitative data with the qualitative data can give so much power and value, right? Yeah, and especially in stewardship. Yeah. antimicrobial stewardship it's like there's definitely a value of seeing okay how are prescription levels changing which care providers are prescribing more or less but if you can't answer the why to some degree or try to acknowledge the why exactly you lose a lot of the value of that research that's totally it. you know for example a few months ago we did the covid increase on antimicrobial yeah. prescribing or decrease and then it's good to have the data you know we have the data this is the raw data this is it is increased it is decreased but to me kind of like why is this happening how have we gotten to actually make this change it's yeah. what makes the difference right and it's what actually gives us information to make changes that might be sustained over time right yeah. we cannot just say this happened in a point and time and that's it if you don't understand why it happened you might not be able to replicate it or if you don't understand why something bad is happening you might not be able to change it right and i feel like it's i mean i don't dangerous sounds maybe a bit overblown but i'd like to say it's dangerous to assume from just the data of changes like that like for example prescribing patterns and stuff like that 
you can't put too much thought into just how much it's changing. You have to look at the context and it, you lose that with you're not looking at qualitative data as well. Mm-hmm. If you're not asking people, and yeah, you might be getting a bias through you. And one great thing in this article, they talk about how do we assure quality and qualitative research and discussions that should be had and values that should be had, the way that editors maybe need to look at papers, the way that readers need to look at papers. We maybe need to change a bit, but not including qualitative data definitely reduces the value of the work we're doing mm-hmm. in my mind. Yeah. I just want to go through a few of the other things they bring up. I'll just kind of gloss through them. They talk about how do you sample right? How do you recruit people? And how do you analyze the data? How should you think about that? Are there ways to maybe improve the analyzing? Are there things you can lose if you're not doing it a certain way? I also really enjoy that they talk in particular about the patient public involvement, especially because, you know, qualitative data is going to be based on the stakeholders, in particular, you know, when we talk about AMS, it can be the patients, it can be the practitioners, it can be the policymakers, all those people whose actions directly affect the topic. And in this case, is yeah. how we are using, how we're managing our resources that are the antibiotics, right? So patient public involvement, it means that you are able to work with these stakeholders throughout the research process. This is also called sometimes, and maybe some of you have heard about citizen science, which is you actually are able to bring the public into the research process. And AMS in particular is such a place because how people think about infections, how they seek care, how do they actually go on with having their treatments, how do they vote for their politicians that might or might not have any positions on this, all these actions that they might have, it will affect the result. Therefore, they are embedded in the system and leaving them aside and not including them in the research process, it is a mistake. Right. It is a mistake. So with this thinking of how can we involve these stakeholders from the beginning of the research process, which is, are we asking the right question? You can involve people from the patients and from the public to realize what questions do need to be answered. Are we performing the sampling of the data in the right way? And even further into the data analysis, are we analyzing this data and presenting the results in a way that will be able to be understood by the right stakeholders? For example, the policymakers, are they understanding what we're saying, what the results are, what are the next steps to be taken? So I think it's beautiful to look at this qualitative research from that point of view as well, that it actually helps us to be closer to the people that are most involved in this. And coming from a very lab background, you know, and a very quantitative background, this is something that I wish perhaps that I would have been have something more of, you know, because yeah. I can never talk to my bacteria. And that is something that I was like always, you know, <laughs> we, we measure things. I measure things and I try to make assumptions and try to understand the why and the how of that you know and when you're working in the lab you have your cells you have your bacteria you have your enzymes whatever you are measuring and they don't really are you know you cannot ask them anything but when you are working in this area you have the possibility to make it an open conversation and to really get into into understanding them understanding the behavior suggesting how to change things 
So I, I think it's beautiful to look at it from this point of view. And I already thought that qualitative research is very important for AMR in particular, because we humans are at the center of it. And yeah. if you don't really study to understand why we do what we do, we really are not going to get anywhere. Yeah, because it's behavior change. Anything that yeah. you want behavior change, you you have to understand why. Exactly. I mean, otherwise it makes no sense. You're not doing anything. And I'm really happy to say that uh, at our center, at the Antibiotic Center, even though we have a lot of quantitative research, a lot of quantitative research in many areas, we have also a couple of projects that are particularly looking into this more qualitative focus. And I have to say, I think I understand them much better after reading this article, because now I yeah. understand how did they thought about the research question? How do they went in to get that data? How are they analyzing the data? Mm. So I feel like I'm much more equipped to actually understand this kind of science after reading this article. So I Absolutely. really, really recommend it. And it's, it's also a very fun and easy read, I would I say. say. It's a very light, easy read. I didn't think it was any difficult at all. But like you said, I was thinking back at previous papers I've read and I was like, okay, now I get it a little bit more. I get why they looked at this. I get... I get the theory of why they did this and not this. And like, I just wish I'd read this earlier. Yeah, right. <laughs> or like, I wish I had some introduction to qualitative research in general. But this is a start. And it's... I think it's very useful for anyone who's trying to branch out in AMR and try to understand the different fields a little bit better. This is, I think, almost crucial reading if you haven't come from a qualitative research background. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I really wanted to point out before we finish up, because I, I think it's extremely cool that they actually mentioned this in particular in the article and is the need for these multidisciplinary interdisciplinary groups and projects you know yeah. like i think qualitative research really benefits from doing it with people that have different outlooks and viewpoints right they Absolutely. when they talk about the data analysis and how you can triangulate the researchers that means that you have different people analyzing the data separately one way mm -hmm. that gives you less biases in the analysis of the data yeah it's a type of quality control but it also brings so much of different perspectives. And here you have to bring, you know, social scientists, sociologists, ethnographers together with maybe GPs and nurses and clinicians that are doing this research. Having this very interdisciplinary setup, it's so cool. And, yeah. I, and this is like a very good opportunity for it. If you have quantitative research and you're realizing that your next step question is why or how. Yeah reach out, try to find somebody who's willing to take that step and join your team and do it the other way as well. You know, like, yeah, I, I really hope that people see the benefit of, especially, and I, they mentioned here as well, I mean, both are good, but combining them, I think can be so useful. Yeah, I agree. It was great. I'm really happy that we found these two papers for this month, actually. Yeah. I really enjoyed the reads of this month. They're very different, but I actually, I read them much faster than I usually do if we put it that way. <laughs> but yeah, before we wrap up, I'd like to just mention a little bit of a blurb. If you remember, we've talked about before the AMR Action Fund, a largely pharmaceutical industry-driven action fund to try to benefit projects in the pipeline of antimicrobials. Two have actually been selected to be funded right now. Interestingly enough, one is a bacteriophage project, which is a bit of an interesting approach. It's different from what's currently used mainly, of course. We've talked about bacteriophage treatment before, so I'm not going to dwell into it. But there's also a how you could say more classical option that's being funded, which is a uh, beta-lactam and a 
inhibitor. So a combination therapy to try to improve the current drugs we have, if we put it that way. It's nice to see that these projects are continuing on. I think it was personally interesting to see a push into bacteriophage direction. And I think that's, it's nice. Uh, there are some companies and industries looking at bacteriophage therapy and trying to make it more feasible. Hopefully that keeps going. Hopefully they bring in some new things into the funding. Can keep an eye on that and see how it goes in the future. For sure. Good news coming in too. More money, put into more projects. Generally yeah. a good thing. <laughs> and if it goes through, I mean, it's a success story. For sure. We can see what we get out of these kinds of projects. We wish them the best with it. Yes. All right. Then with that, we are done for this month. Sorry for the slight delay in the episode. We are hoping that for the next episode, yeah. we're coming in on time. <laughs> And we are soon approaching summer. When I think about episodes, it's like in two episodes, we're already in summer. That's great thought. <laughs> and that's terrifying for me because I'm defending in October. That's true. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I'm just looking forward for better weather. I think a lot of people might I, I can agree that. on that. It snowed yesterday here. So. Mm -hmm. All right, guys. Thank you so much for being with us one more month and hope to have you back on the next one. Bye. Absolutely. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.